Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Adios, old friend. Yeah, I've got no secrets and no regrets. Well, a lot of regrets. But the point is, I've got nothing to hide. Kind of like the way Progressive shows you their competitors' rates. You gotta put it all out there, baby. Excuse me, miss. Does this heart belong to you? Would you like it anyway? Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparisons not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Ah, the copperhead snake. It hisses before attacking. But that's not a copperhead. That's the Sullivan's RV freshwater tank overflowing into their black one, which is backing into their vent pipe, making for a very different kind of attack. One that arrives just in time for taco night. It's wild out there. When it gets too wild, Progressive has your RV covered. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This young man has been a champion. In high school, and then he's gone on to have a had a uh, stellar career at UCLA. And his father was talking at that time, but it didn't bother him. And so, as long as it doesn't bother him, it's not going to bother the Laker organization. As long as Lonzo performs on the basketball court, right? <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Lakers Legacy, where who cares about LeBron James versus Kevin Durant when we can instead be spending hours on end thinking about Lowry Markinen versus Zach Collins? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Especially because over here in these parts, we are much more focused on trying to get harder, better, faster, stronger. Draft Punk. Oh, and, and younger, too, of course. Obviously. I'm your host, Jonathan Hernandez, and I'm once again joined by my co-hosts, Alan Riley and Tommy Alexander. Fellas, how are you guys doing? And are you guys ready to finally get some top-ranked players into the facility and worked out finally so that we have something substantial to work off of instead of the dried-up tea leaves we're currently dealing with? Tommy? Yeah, definitely looking forward to that. Uh, it's been a little frustrating. I feel like every day I wake up, I, I want to draft a different player. So I, I, it would, it'll be nice to see some workouts and some videos and, and maybe a little more clarity on the situation. Alan, how are you feeling? Yeah, I agree with all that. Definitely getting anxious for everything to get going. Um, like Tommy said, it's kind of like a flavor of the day type thing. You watch 10, 20, 30 minutes of one guy and then you're sold on him watch the same thing for somebody else and you want to take them. So let's see something definitive and, um, you know, who knows, maybe we'll actually be able to lean one way a little bit harder. 
Yeah, and it's funny, right? Because you hear this, some sentiment shifting, Magic Johnson highlighting certain players, and you're not really working off of anything substantial, right? So hopefully once we get them worked out, then we can actually have something to glean from. Uh, with that said, today we've got one of our old podcast friends and popular draft analyst Cole Zwicker on. He's from the Step Back and What's on Draft podcast, also part of the Almighty Baller Radio Network, and he's going to be on to talk about the NBA draft as a whole, some Lonzo Ball stuff, but also focus squarely on the other guys, quote-unquote. Josh Jackson, uh, De'Aaron Fox, Tatum, Monk, Dennis Smith, etc. So it's definitely going to be a fun show. But before we get to that, per usual, please follow us on Twitter, at Lakers Legacy Pod. Please also rate and review us on iTunes, because the more you rate and review us, that's how many more pounds of muscle D'Angelo Russell will be packing on to enter next season. And judging by how his offseason training is going, Fool looks super jacked. Speaking of rating and reviews, though, tonight, Tommy Alexander, impressionist extraordinaire, will read the review as Lonzo Ball. Tommy, Lonzo Ball, whenever you're ready. This review is called Five Star Review by Isaac Corona. Five star show, five star impressions, five star lit sanity. <laughs> fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji. You guys need to add another show during the week. One is not enough. Hashtag Lakers Legacy. That's it. Oh, cool. Thanks, Lonzo Ball. That was uh that was very good. Uh as I ask you every episode, Tommy, what went into your channeling of Lonzo Ball? I try to imagine I try to imagine a guy <laughs> who has spent, you know, 18 to 19 years growing up with a dad named LeVar Ball in Chino Hills, tearing people up at the local 24 hour fitness on the basketball courts. <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> wait, can we do that again? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, let's let's just go with that. Thanks, uh, Lonzo Ball. Thanks, Tommy. Um also, you can find us on almightyballer.com and also Dash Radio. Uh, Rob Palinka, tell the listeners when and where. Well, uh, first off, I just want to say that it's great to be here with you guys. You're all doing an excellent job. And, you know, that is what we do here is promote excellence. And this is an excellent show, which will air on Mondays, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., which is an excellent time of day to be productive and to... Start your week off the right way with excellence. So, Lakers Legacy Dash Radio, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific Time. It is excellent, just like the Lakers will be excellent this year. Okay, that was great. Great plug. Thank you, Rob Palinka. With that said, and all that house cleaning out of the way, let's get to our draft talk with Cole Zwicker right after the turn. Anything gonna win out of the Cavs and the Warriors? Cavs and the Warriors? What is the Cavs and the Warriors? Is that a golf team? I wish, I wish I knew what you were talking about, man. All right, this NBA draft segment is brought to you by our sponsors over at Big Baller Brand. Neglect your lighting and electricity bills today. Have comfy Lonzo Ball slippers tomorrow when you're evicted. Cool. All right, so tonight we have possibly the hottest draft scout in the Twitterverse with us on our show. This is his second time around on our show, actually. And I guess outside of the more mainstream, high-profile media guys who may get bigger exposure, such as Kevin O'Connor, Jonathan Gavoni, and Sam Vecini, this guy has really carved out a name for himself this past year and essentially become Draft Scout Hipster's favorite go-to guy. And I'm talking about Mr. Cole Zwicker. 
Cole, welcome back to the show, man. Man, that's a hell of an introduction. I don't know how I can live up to that, but uh, we're going <laughs> to we're gonna try to do it good again and see uh, if we can delve into some prospects at number two. Yeah, definitely. So you've literally been on every show and podcast imaginable in the last week or two. <laughs> so much so that I heard you on a WNBA podcast for some reason, <laughs> right? Is that right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but anyways, what a difference a year makes, right? Because I remember last year when you were first on our podcast and we were the first people ever to reach out to you to be on a show. You weren't even sure how to reactivate your Skype account. And now you've blown up, got your own radio show, and we've now found ourselves on the same radio network, Almighty Baller Radio. So it's pretty cool how things have kind of come full circle. With that said, you should probably plug all your stuff right now before we get started. So take it away. <laughs> sure. Um, right now, I write for the Step Back over at Fansided, and I'm in the process of doing an in-depth skill breakdown of the top four lead guards in this class. So this week, I am doing finishing and driving. As far as how that translates, Lonzo Ball will be out tomorrow. Tomorrow, So that's something that Laker fans will probably want to check out and then, you know, email an or mail anthrax to my house or something. I'm going to be like pretty objective <laughs> about it. But there's there's some lot of there's some low points there. Um, we're going to get into ball in a little bit. But yeah, I, I write for the step back. I have a what's now a weekly podcast. We're trying to do twice a week. Uh, what's on draft pod where Mark Whittington, Javier Pescara and I go over like just in-depth breakdowns of different players. Like today we did Jonathan Isaac. Uh, Malik Monk and Lonzo Ball. So that's something to check out. So what's on draft pod and they have my own website capstrategist.com where I used to write a lot about cap stuff and then I kind of got engulfed in this whole draft culture. So there's a lot of like projection like draft tool stuff on there that you can check out uh, player archetypes. So that's pretty much it. And uh, yeah, happy to be back, man. Cool. Awesome. We're glad to have you back. So with that said, let's get started. And let's start with like overarching general viewpoints on this draft as a whole. And I'll ask Tommy and Alan if they have any questions first. So Alan, take it away. All right, cool. So I was wondering with regards to this year's draft and in comparison to others, how would you describe this draft as a whole? Uh, how deep is this one, especially at the I think it's definitely deeper from like the four to eleven range than last year's was. If there's a pretty clear top three, depending on who you talk to, maybe a top two last year with Simmons and Ingram, and then after that, nobody really knew what the hell to do. This year, it's a little deeper mm -hmm. in that three to eleven range. You have a pretty carved out, maybe not elite tier, but just a, a tier that separates themselves from the masses. I think you could have made an argument last year after like maybe four to like forty. Everybody had an argument. It was a deeper draft as far as maybe into second round talent. I'm not sure if that is going to exist in this draft. I'm not sure if you're going to get a Patrick McCaw at 38th overall. But as far as you know, high-end talent, there's one clear top dog in this class to me being Markel Fultz. That's the, the ceiling outcome guy that has really separated himself from the, the rest of the masses. But after him, from two to seven, you can really make an argument for pretty much anyone that I'll listen to. Uh, if you want to go ceiling outcome, you have a guy like Dennis Smith who has immense upside. If you want to go superstar role player type, you have Lonzo Ball. You have Jonathan Isaac. Uh, John, uh, Josh Jackson fits in that archetype as well, depending on how you view his shooting, translating, if at all, to even a league average level. But I'd say overall, I think this class has one distinct player. And then from two to seven, there's kind of a mini tier. And then it drops off after 11. So it's it's probably deeper than most classes are as far as like projectable talent in the top 10. I'm not sure if it has the ceiling outcomes that a lot of people say preseason. You saw a lot of guys like this could have seven or eight all-stars. I don't see that personally, but I do think you're going to get 10 or 11 really quality players. 
Awesome. Um, so following up on that question, this doesn't happen often, but hypothetically, let's say that certain teams and teams usually don't get too cute with this stuff. But would you say that if there ever was a draft to kind of if you were a team to trade down and get extra value or get two picks in the, the later rounds, would this be the draft to do it in? Or is it hard to say? I think there's a lot of validity to that. I mean, for Philadelphia, it makes a lot of sense because so many role player types fit them. Uh, Malik Monk, for instance, probably is a little bit of a reach at three. So if they would have moved down to, say, six, pick up an extra pick and then take Monk there, you could see some credence to that. I don't see like a huge talent difference from two to seven. So you're not getting immense value at two. The Lakers, Lonzo Ball fits their scheme really well. So maybe for them, it makes a lot of sense to sit, to sit there and stay and, and not move back and risk like a lesser fit. But I, I definitely think there's an argument for that. Sure. Awesome. Um, Tommy had a question with regards to the tier that happens right after Fultz, pretty much. So, Tommy, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, cool. It sort of ties into what you were just sort of touching on there with the fit, uh, the fit issue with Lonzo Ball. Given, like you said, there doesn't really seem to be a consensus number two. I mean, typically when you're a, a, a team that's as bad as we've been the last few years, or a team that's bad enough, I guess, to be in the top five in the lottery, you're going <laughs> to you're going to typically be selecting best player available regardless of what works with your roster. But given how the number two through seven ish range that you mentioned, there isn't too much uh, deviation there. Can you start to look at, do you think teams in, in like, for example, with the number two pick should start to look more at team fit at that point? Um, do you think that's something that's more appropriate this year than maybe in other years? I definitely do. And team fit kind of encompasses best player available as well. That's the best player available that fits your team. There's distinct talent at the top. This is what I felt like last year with Ben Simmons. I felt like he was the clear number one player. And after that, similar to this class, you can mix and match. Certain guys are going to fit certain schemes better and therefore be best available player. I don't think there's like an unbelievable talent that's going to be there at number two that you can't pass up on no matter what your scheme is. I I like Dennis Smith's upside, but there's absolutely credible arguments that he has a lot of downside as well. So I don't think there's like a can't miss player at two that you you can't pass up on and, you know, choose a team fit that might optimize that player and therefore make him the best player available. Sure. And I think even last year, I think there was more of a clear cut number two with Brandon Ingram. Right. And even after that, it was like, okay, who the heck else is there this year? Like you said, do you think that would you really fault someone for taking anyone from the, you know, two to seven range at number two like would it be would there be a player where if it was taken there would be uproar over like Okafor oh my gosh or is could a rational case be made for anyone in that spot you could make a you could probably make a rational case I'm lower on De'Aaron Fox and then we'll get to him I would not take him at number two he is way too risky for me there and that might be a minority opinion that's a personal take of mine uh, he's the one guy that stands out him and Lowry Markin who's not even in my top seven tier he's outside of that but if, if you were to take either one of those guys at number two I think it's a bit of a reach and you know, there are better options available, like talent wise and fit wise, that I think that would be a bad pick. But outside of that, you could make arguments for, you know, four or five, six guys credibly. Maybe, maybe not Malik Monk as much when you factor in fit as far as with D'Angelo, but even even with him, you can see the shot making upside that would be make it somewhat of a defensible pick. Sure. And and lastly on this same topic, would you agree that whoever is picked at number two, there won't be a case where it's like a total bust in terms of, you know, in previous years, we've had guys like Derek Williams at number two. I think Evan Turner, MKG to a lesser extent. 
would you agree that like that's probably not going to happen in this case that even if you pick at number two you'll likely get someone at least at the very least who has a solid floor i agree with that i think that's the strength of this draft is that you're going to get a useful player who knows what exactly that will be and how high the ceiling is but i think you're getting a respectable talent in the top six or seven you know maybe there's some bust dependent potential as far as what the relativity is for that who knows what really bust really means you out of the league are you not living up to your your stock I mean Andrew Wiggins at number one was relatively a bust compared to other number one picks but yeah your point stands as far as you're probably going to get a high floor quality player that can contribute in some kind of fashion hopefully to winning basketball awesome okay so before we get started on the Lonzo Ball and Josh Jackson stuff who do you have as your personal top five on, on your big board right now I have Dennis Smith number two that's as much as I've ironed out. Mm. Um, I don't think he's a tier ahead. I have a tier from two to seven. But for me, I value primary initiate, primary initiators really highly. And he's the only other guy in this class I feel like is a primary lead guard at the next level. Um, so I have him two. And then right now, I haven't really aligned or, or ordered specifically three to five, three to seven. I just have, you know, Lonzo's in there, Isaac's in there, Josh Jackson, the names that you see pretty much in every single coverage. I also have Malik Monk a little bit higher than most people do in that top seven, but that's not like a minority opinion. The only thing I don't have is De'Aaron Fox. I have him at number 12. Ooh, okay. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue into Lonzo Ball and his fit with the Lakers. So like we just talked about, even though you may personally not have Ball as your number two prospect, would you say that at least for the Lakers and their system and what they're looking for, that he's at least the perfect fit for them? Because even if, let's say, Dennis Smith is slightly the better player, I think, you know, Tommy, Allen, and I have talked about this before, but Dennis Smith needs the ball in his hands and there could be a case where he's not the right fit with D'Angelo Russell and you may encounter a case down the line where you might have to rush to trade D'Angelo Russell unnecessarily because they just don't work. You know what I mean? So yeah, what are your thoughts on Lonzo Ball and his fit particularly with the Well, before I get into that, I want to ask you guys' opinion on D'Angelo Russell. I think you guys Mm -hmm. are still high on him um, from what I can tell on Twitter, but are you guys still viewing him as the lead guard of the future or have you guys kind of ascribed to that he's going to be a two guard, he's a better off-ball player now? Where do you guys stand on that? Somebody want to take that? Yeah, um, he could go either way. You know, he's kind of your prototypical combo guard at this point where he is good at distributing and playmaking for others um especially i would say like next year for example in the half court he would probably do the majority of that as opposed to lonzo ball where lonzo would be the one in transition uh being the lead guard but i do think in the second half of the season d'angelo did play very well off ball and if he is labeled so to speak as a two that would be fine. And then in terms of his passing ability and playmaking for others, that could just be the icing on the cake or the cherry on top. Uh, I don't know if I'm ready to strictly label him as such though. Tommy. Yeah. For me, I always go back to uh, like, what is a lead guard in, in the 2017 NBA? You know what I mean? I I think D'Angelo can initiate an offense. I think he has point guard skills. I don't think he's, Steve Nash, Chris Paul, like one of these traditional point guards. Um, but I think he could play both guard positions. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know if he, if I had to be put on the spot right now and say, is this guy a starting point guard on a championship quality team? I don't think I could, could, could commit to that. But I think 
he is a starting guard on a championship team and and whether he develops into a pure more of a pure point guard role or a pure uh shooting guard role or you know more of a scorer i guess i I think that remains to be seen yeah and i think in general the way we see it is especially if lonzo ball is in the fold here that lonzo ball can kind of calm d'angelo's uh freneticness and hecticness and when it comes down when it comes down to the times where the offense bogs down and we just need a simple pick and roll play and someone to iso that would probably be d'angelo's job and because lonzo ball is so good and effective off ball that d'angelo could initiate the offense at those times but when d'angelo's usage is going skyrocketing then lonzo ball can kind of quell everything and and kind of be the glue guy that that makes everything mesh well together so i think that's our thoughts on it what about you uh, I think that's spot on. I just want to get you guys gauged for where you guys are at with that. I, I totally agree with basically all of that. Um, Lonzo is a great fit off ball in that kind of screen and pass system. That's where he's best in like a UCLA concept where he's passing, he's moving off the ball. He's making the extra pass, of course, but he's not like a straight pick and roll point guard. And that's something that I think there's been some building narrative, especially on Twitter about, yeah, Lonzo's going to come in and D'Angelo's going to be solely off the ball. And D'Angelo has better on-ball skills than Lonzo does, in my opinion. What you, what you guys said about the tra- transition with ball handling that, I think that's absolutely spot on. That's where you that's where you want ball. You want him in transition, making those outlet passes, making those reads. D'Angelo can run and spot up on the wing. And then the half court, I mean, the Lakers offense is more like everybody shares the ball. It's not like conventional. You're not like James Harden, 1-5 pick and roll every time. It's more like pass and it's Golden State stuff. So it's a lot of predicated on cutting, shooting, and that's all the stuff that Lonzo does well. I really like the fit from that perspective. Um, obviously, Lonzo has problems getting to the rim and finishing there on ball in in, uh, in college, and I think that's going to translate like that. I, I, all his finishing acumen, most of that is on ball or sorry, off ball efficiency. He's not someone that gets to the to the rim very often in pick and rolls and stuff like that. Navigates himself to the rim. His handle's not very good. So we we know that D'Angelo kind of struggles in that area as well. He's got a way better handle, but he's not a great finisher due to that lack of athleticism around the rim. So there are issues as far as who's going to get to the rim on this offense. But I think that it's mitigated by the offensive scheme to some extent because they they're looking for more, more shooting and that's how they create their offense. Defensively, of course, there's going to be issues. I I, I really like Lonzo's off ball D. I think he's a one position defender probably, yeah. but he's got great instincts for the ball. Um, he he shows advanced acumen there, and that kind of goes to his basketball awareness overall. He's not a point of attack defender as far as navigating screens and sticking with elite perimeter players as far as speed goes. Neither is D'Angelo, so you're going to have to work out your kinks there and really fortify the back. Ingram's probably going to be a good defender, so he can help there. So, but it comes down to, are you going to get rim protection at the five? What can Julius Randle give you if he gives you anything? But uh, overall, I think it's it's one of the better offensive scheme fits for Lonzo in the draft, no question. Awesome. Um, with regards to Lonzo's play at UCLA, I feel like we always end up coming back to like this chicken or egg argument with regards to his sample size of pick and roll play and off the dribble play for himself. Um, how much would you attribute the lack of sample size in off the dribble drives and pick and roll plays to UCLA's system versus Lonzo being smart and playing within that system versus he just can't do these things very well right now? I think it's probably, as usual, a mix of all three. But I look really heavily at the film as far as when he gets those opportunities. What does he do with them? And I just haven't been impressed with his handle and traffic. He's not super shifty with a lot of shake with the ball. And he's he's kind of a stiff finisher. If you notice, like he doesn't have a ton of flexibility when he goes up. Not a lot of explosion and traffic. He can't contort like a Markel Fultz can. So there are some on-ball concerns that, regardless of the scheme, and and this is someone who dealt with pristine spacing spacing at the college level. Like UCLA system 
as much as you know Lonzo gets credit for you know making them a, a better squad and he absolutely deserves that it's reciprocal like they offer spacing like nobody else had like a pick and pop for like leaf as well as like a stretch kind of a stretch five um that can shoot mid-range shots and then had those two wing shooters so the predicament for him to thrive as far as attacking the rim was there and when he did i didn't see enough to for me to be confident in saying, yeah, this guy can do that at the next level on like traditional lead guard volume. He's more of like, I'm going to attack a secondary uh, closeout situation, make a pass on the move, that kind of stuff. And he's an underrated athlete when he has a head of steam finishing above the rim. But I didn't see a lot of like projectable lead guard self-creation from him. And I think that's an, a huge issue. Yeah, I think what encourages me, though, kind of like what you just said in that last point, being an underrated athlete when he has a head of steam, does it when he has space and especially in transition, obviously, when he gets into the lane, he can't finish in traffic because he's slight of frame. But when he has space and when he's in transition and it's free flowing, wouldn't you agree that he's he pretty much looks as fast as anybody and then all he exponentially looks more athletic finishing at the rim do he, all of a sudden he can make these contorting layups and then he goes up for these like hammer dunks and all this stuff it's just do you think eventually once he builds out his frame he'll be able to do that more in traffic and off his own accord that's a really important distinction and you're absolutely right in transition his top end speed i think is really underrated he can really build up at a steam and attack but even when he does that you, you notice the lack of body control he doesn't decelerate well. Like as far as like if he's going top end speed, you see a lot of layups where he can't stop and like contort his body at all. He just throws the ball really hard off the backboard. I- I'm coming out with Alonzo uh, finishing piece tomorrow, as I said, and that's in there probably five times. And that's just from a limited sample on synergy. So it, I-, I get where you guys are coming from as far as in transition. I have no qualms about him there. I think he'll be okay in space when he has a head of steam. It's more half court um, stuff that translates to the playoffs because in, tra- in, in, the, in the playoffs, teams always run back in transition, at least the good ones, and you really have to score in the half court. And that's my my qualms with Lonzo. It's nothing to do with transition. I think he's going to be dynamite there. Gotcha. Um, before we move on from Lonzo, Allen, did you have any questions you wanted to ask Cole about Lonzo specifically? Yeah. I mean, with regards to the body control, how much of that do you feel like is fixable and under you know his own control? Uh, in terms of him obviously building up his strength and I mean he's he's so young he's obviously going to get bigger and stronger but do you see this as something that is fixable with time and dedication or is it kind of like uh, the ceiling with regards to his body control is a bit lower? I think the strength element he can build upon. He's not very physical right now as far as finishing through contact. He doesn't seek to, and his instincts as a slasher aren't that good. He's just not very refined there. You see him pull up too like too soon when he's attacking the rim, not go all the way to the basket, stuff like that. But as far as body control, you usually see flexibility at, at a lower level. So you can see, like for instance, Markel Fultz, you can see how he adjusts in midair. You can see the same thing with Dennis Smith. That ex- The explosion helps that they have a little bit more in traffic, but they can like jump in the air and hang there. And you usually see that from a younger age. We saw that from Kyrie. Uh, even Steph Curry showed a little bit of that, even though he refined his touch. And I think maybe Lonzo can refine his touch a little bit, which is pretty raw. Like, I think he only had six floater attempts this year. And while that's not like a, a really high percentage shot, it definitely shows your ability to get touch on the ball. So... If I'm going to bet on him improving in any capacity, it's going to be adding strength to his frame, maybe having a more physical mindset, and then improving his touch. But as, but as far as his like overall agility, uh, flexibility with the ball finishing, ability to contort, I'm not sure he's going to get there because I just haven't seen someone that looks that stiff as far as navigating his way to the rim really improve that much. But then again, I'm not like a strength and conditioning coach I'm not, or physical therapist or anything like that. This, that's my take. 
Tommy, do you have any questions on Lonzo? Uh, no, I don't have any, any, any questions other than what we've all talked about so far. Okay, cool. So to close this Lonzo Ball um, segment out, I wanted to go back to my initial question in terms of, do you think that Lonzo Ball is the perfect fit for the Lakers, even though you may say that like, oh, Dennis Smith is probably, in my opinion, the better player. But given what I said, we kind of think, I, I like Dennis Smith a lot too, but on the Lakers, I'm not sure how how well he would mesh with D'Angelo Russell because both of those guys really need the ball. Both of them are kind of erratic. We don't know what's going to happen when they have the ball, et cetera, et cetera. So... Yeah, I'm I'm higher on D'Angelo still than most are, so I don't think they need that primary initiator necessarily. I think that D'Angelo can still be that guy. This is kind of the year for me that's going to mm-hmm. make or, make or break him. So I, I agree. I think that Lonzo is a better schematic fit for the Lakers, and he's him. I mean, him going to either L.A. or Philadelphia are the two teams. I mean, obviously they're two and three, but those are the two teams that were like. I have no qualms with them taking Lonzo that high, even if I end up having him four or five. It's a nice either team fit with Philadelphia or a really nice scheme fit with LA. So yeah, I have no qualms with that. So I didn't expect to ask you this question, but I just wanted to get your opinion. Do you think because, you know, Lonzo Ball and his father are so adamant about getting him to the Lakers, not to say that the Lakers would do this because no team does this, but if they decided to get cute with it and, you know, trade with Phoenix for the number four pick, expecting to still have Lonzo Ball there, do you think Philadelphia would still jump in there and take Lonzo Ball? Because I agree with you. I think he would be a perfect fit next to Ben Simmons at, at, with Ben Simmons being the primary initiator and Lonzo Ball doing all the cool off-ball shooting and cutting stuff that he normally does. So do you think that Philly would just say, ah, oh, we're taking Lonzo at three? Yes, I, I really do. I think the scheme fit and the, and the team fit is, is too good for them to pass. And Lonzo has a really really, really high rapport with the league. If you talk to league executives, they're all really high on him, his intellect and stuff like that. So I definitely think that they would take him there. Okay, cool. I'm guessing the Lakers don't get cute with it. All right. With that (laughs) said, let's move on to Josh Jackson, who the Lakers are also high on. And Magic Johnson was just on the radio the last week talking about how impressed he is by Josh Jackson, um, smashing girls' cars, notwithstanding. Um, But yeah, what are your thoughts on Josh Jackson and yeah, his, his potential floor and upside? He's someone that when I first started watching him, I watched basketball originally for my first take in scouting is for instincts, defense, passing. How do you fit in a team construct? And of course, he came across really strong in those areas. He seemed like a two-way player who has good instincts moving the ball. He's someone that's more instincts and I think he has intelligence. It's just he reacts really quickly on the court. He can catch the ball in the mid post and just immediately swing the ball. And you don't see that from many guys. He just knows where things are and he reacts that way. But when you go back through the tape, you start worrying about what does this guy do in elite fashion? A lot of people say defense. He's going to be an impact defender. You get the Kawhi comparisons. He's not that guy. He doesn't have the functional strength. His frame is actually not that good. Uh, He doesn't have that great length. I think he's got a 6'10 wingspan. So his reach, he's not going to impact guys that way. And his lateral agility is good, not great. So when you put all those things together on that side of the ball, he is good. I don't see the like the ability to be great. I see more of a Michael Kidd Gilchrist high effort defender because that's what he is. He brings that high intensity. Um, and then you, you factor in the offense where the jump shooting is, is a big concern. He he ironed out the catch and shoot kind of off the uh, off the catch three a little bit with that hitch that he had earlier in the year. So that that gives you some you know cause for for uh, positivity there. But 
Overall, he doesn't have a great first step. You don't see him catch the ball in triple threat, give guys shakes, and like he doesn't have a lot of fluidity shooting off the dribble. So really, when you look at his game, offensively, do you think he's going to be a secondary handler? And if he is, like that really requires you to shoot well. I mean, the Lakers found that out with Brandon Ingram last year. Like you got to mm-hmm. shoot the ball okay. Um, I like his ability to attack a bent defense as far as on a closeout. But the issue is teams are going to play two feet off of him and force him to shoot. So if you're looking at his high upside scoring, like I think the ringer had a ceiling outcome for him of Tracy McGrady, which is ludicrous. But like looking at that kind of approach, I don't get like the high ceiling with him anymore, but I think he's going to be a quality player. I think a lot of people ask uh, what what differentiates him from a guy like Michael Kidd-Gilchrist or Derek Williams or Wesley Johnson, these extremely athletic guys. And I always go back to his basketball IQ. I feel like it's extremely high. And then his handles, it's pretty decent. I think it's like more than decent, actually. I think he looks better and more fluid, especially in transition than Brandon Ingram did, uh, just because he's a more, he has more compact body. And uh, I think that's what I was most impressed by, just the way he was able to handle the ball in transition, make plays for himself and make plays for others. And then on top of that, I just feel like heard that he's a very intense guy who whose competitive competitiveness can never be questioned so I kind of like that I've heard also that that hurts him because he tends to be erratic and like Tasmanian <laughs> devilish but um Tommy what, what are your thoughts I know Tommy has some thoughts on Josh Jackson if you wanted to yeah for me Josh Jackson the question I always have when I watch him play is how is this guy gonna score in the NBA I know he's gonna score and I know like because he's so athletic and and all this and that he's going to, he's going to figure out a way to get the ball in the basket. You know, he has handles, he's six, eight. He's not like super long, I guess for his position, if he projects as a small forward, but he, he's going to be able to, I I just, the Paul George, I mean, sorry, the Tracy McGrady thing you said is like, you're, you're reading as some people are saying that's his, that's his upside. I, I can see where that comes from, I guess, but I agree. It's, it's generally ridiculous because, how is this guy going to get that shot off in the NBA consistently? How is he going to make, how, you know, is he, I don't know. I, I just, when I, when I watch this guy play, I don't get the sense that he can develop into this number one type of scorer. And this is kind of a big drop off for me too, because there was a while where I was, I thought Josh Jackson might be the best player in the draft, um, even above faults. But the more I've, I've looked at his game, I just, I don't really see that, um, and yeah, I don't know. I, is there anything is there anything optimistic about him offensively with regards to his shot that I should be looking at or how how is this guy going to get points? You know what I mean? Like I I don't view this guy as a guy who's going to come off of screens off the ball, catch it and shoot threes, you know? So what is he going to do? No, I think you just hit the nail on the head. And that's kind of the realization I came to over the course of the season. I really liked him initially. And then you start digging back into the film and asking yourself, how is he going to score? You know, are guys actually going to guard him? You know, he came off a ton of weave actions. Kansas played him at the four solely. He was blowing by inferior athletes. But they got they got him the ball on the move to where he was like, he has a basic handle. He's okay for a secondary handler. He can do basic crossovers. He showed us a little bit of that step-back game against Michigan State, uh, Miles Bridges. But he still couldn't beat Miles Bridges off the dribble because Miles Bridges was playing a foot and a half off of him outside of that one closeout dunk. Um, it, it's absolutely warranted. He, his first step isn't that great. And 
he doesn't have the fluidity shooting off the dribble. And that's kind of what you look at, like the Paul George types, the guys that can catch in the mid post, they have that fluidity where they can give you like a jab step and then shoot over you. I don't see Josh Jackson as that kind of guy. For me, he's much more of a secondary handler type, more of like a guard almost, but without like that advanced of ball skills, he's just a really tough guy to project because I don't know if he profiles that well at the four. He's just pretty lean. I'm sure he can play there in like some instances depending on lineups, but he doesn't have like Jonathan Isaac four upside. He, He doesn't have that like frame the ability to rebound the length so he's, he's really tricky because there's there's some stuff there when you talk about shooting improvement like I referenced earlier like he caught off the hop shot some NBA threes I think he hit like eight of 20 down the stretch I want to say from NBA threes or like maybe a foot in front so he shot with range and he looked much more comfortable not having that ridiculous hitch uh, they ironed out his form a little bit you still see it materialize every once in a while but at least that shows the ability and the work ethic to change. And that's kind of what he's known for, like a competitive desire. So there are some positives. I just don't see that immense upside from a wing. And I think he gets a lot more credit than he deserves as an on-ball creator. And I'm not sure if that translates. Okay. Um, Do you agree with the Andre Iguodala comp in terms of that being his floor? Or do you think that's actually his ceiling? I don't even think that's his ceiling. And that's something that I was promoting earlier in this year until I went back and I was like, Iguodala was extremely explosive laterally defensively. Uh, he had the functional strength, and he, he he's just a technician. To ask Josh Jackson to get to that level, I think, is a bit much. I can see it offensively as far as kind of the general approach. Iguodala is a little bit better of a passer, a little bit better of a dribbler. But if you're talking about like a generational defensive player, and that's what Iguodala is, I don't see that value. And that's where Iguodala has brought his peak value is on that end of the floor. Gotcha. Alan, do you have any thoughts on Josh Jackson or any questions? I mean, it's pretty consistent with everything I was thinking, and naturally it all does go toward his shot. I mean, we were really hyped up about Brandon Ingram and how well he was shooting at Duke, and then clearly in the first half of the season, he was historically (laughs) bad for a rookie. So then you think about Josh Jackson, who clearly has some shooting and offensive deficiencies at the college level. It does make you wary of what the heck is that going to look like in the NBA, And, you know, the question I was going to ask was, I mean, his mechanics have been pretty jacked up. Like, sometimes he doesn't even follow through when he shoots. It's like his hand just kind of flicks instead of reaching into the proverbial cookie jar. His elbow tends to flare out to the side. It's not even pointing straight toward the basket. Sometimes he releases on the way down instead of at the peak of his jump. And you did touch on it, and you said he is an extremely competitive, driven, motivated guy. Therefore, you would hope his work ethic will pay off. But, I mean, if you were a betting man, you know, like, what are the odds that he can work these kinks out effectively and actually be consistent? And if so, I mean, what's the timetable for that? How long would it take to get to a point where you can rely on him? If I was a betting man, I would definitely not bet for that because we've seen how fickle shooting is translating. There's a big, big difference between being an established shooter in college, like a Malik Monk, like a Lowry Markinen, and being a projectable shooter. I think a lot of people would have said Brandon Ingram can shoot the ball pretty well at the next level, and we saw just how much he struggled, and I feel like he was more advanced shooting than Josh was. Uh, we still see that 40% from three from Ingram, and then the, the low free throw percentage wasn't great off the dribble, and Josh is even lower from the foul line and lower from three-point uh, percentage. So basically, like it, it's a huge roll of the dice that he does that. But NBA guys are going to bet on the character. They're going to bet on the work ethic. They're much more driven to do that. And they know these people and these individuals much better than we do as far as, you know, can this guy is going to be in the gym, is going to be working his ass off. So 
I mean, I would not bet on his shot improving. It's just, it's too, like, on the low end of the spectrum for me to have much optimism in. Gotcha. I don't know. For me, Josh Jackson, I still have hope for him just because he's like the most explosive athlete, I believe, in this draft and in recent years as well. I guess you can make a case for Dennis Smith, pound for pound. But I mean, the way that he just is able to like pretty much jump over people, he's not very creative with his finishes, but man, he just hammers it down from Valhalla, you know? And then sometimes (laughs) he, I've seen him do like the Dr. J up and under. He's very, he has like, it seems like he can contort his body in, in, in small spaces. And then on top of it, I'm just more impressed by sometimes his playmaking ability and, you know, his ability to find guys in his willingness to do so. So I guess my last question to you on Josh Jackson is, would it surprise you if he ended up being the best prospect, non-Markel Fultz prospect at the end of the day? And if he ends up becoming that, what do you think led to to him getting to that place, I guess? It would not surprise me. I wouldn't really be surprised by anybody two through seven, really, okay. being, being that level of player. Uh, it's a little bit different to see the avenue with him reaching that upside just because if you don't believe in the shooting, if you don't believe in the self-creation, what what wing really has that immense value that can't shoot the ball and, and can't like either primary initiator wing like Giannis or LeBron who can handle all the playmaking and they're like, outlier good uh finishers around the rim i don't really Mm -hmm. see that for josh he's got good uh like you said he's got pretty good touch there and he's fearless like that guy will go in and he'll try to finish through contact and that's those are really positive qualities but i I guess i wouldn't be surprised because there is enough of a two-way baseline where and skill set where he's pretty good he's a jack of all trades master of none right he's good at pretty much everything he's just not great at anything so if he becomes great at even one of those things he has a chance to be the second best player in this class or even the best player in this class but I, i definitely i don't think i'd bet on it at this point Gotcha. Cool. Okay, so let's move on to the last prospect that the Lakers are apparently high upon that you've already kind of tipped your hand that you're not, uh, De'Aaron Fox. (laughs) So obviously De'Aaron Fox, really fast, very crafty in the lane. Uh, He's kind of like a Patrick Beverly on defense, kind of. He can finish in traffic. Um, Is he this year's version of Alfred Payton, Chris Dunn? I don't know. Um, I guess I will say from what I've seen and what I've heard, the Lakers did interview him at the draft combine and the guy seems to be a very personable, mature athlete who is very driven and you know the work ethic will be there um obviously the biggest problems are with his shot so i guess for you who you you have him at number 12 i believe you said um yeah what are your thoughts on De'Aaron fox well first of all he's a great kid and i think that's really going to be the selling point for him in these interviews he's probably my favorite individual person in the draft i've had the pleasure of like being around him at the hoop summit and stuff like that he's really awesome guy uh but i have to fixate on on court talents otherwise it just doesn't make any damn sense so sure uh, as far as his strengths, people see his strengths are getting into the lane at the college level. Absolutely. He's great speed. In transition especially, he's probably the fastest player in the draft. He's definitely the quickest player. Uh, he doesn't have that John Wall transcendent quickness, but he's really close. Where I worry about him is obviously the shooting. I don't believe in the two-motion shot extending. I think he's, what, like 9 of 45 on, on catch-and-shoot college threes. He didn't make an NBA three all year. I think he attempted one that I saw off the dribble and it was way short. So I don't know if he has the strength and building into that, the strength is my biggest concern with him because even if he doesn't shoot, which really limits your offense because he has to be your primary guy because nobody's drafting him to play off the ball and then nobody guards him. That's not why you want him. 
Um, it's the strength element. He's 169 at the combine, really, really skinny legs. If you see him in person, this guy has like razor thin legs and Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much he can add to that. So we talk about his best ability is going to be getting into the lane and finishing. I'm not sure if he can do that at a high level because he doesn't have the body type for it. Like he's explosive. He's okay in traffic. Uh, he doesn't finish through contact. Well, I mean, he struggled with guys like Vanderbilt's Luke Cornett at the rim, and that's going to be a low level NBA rim protector, even though he probably is an NBA rim protector, but project him his his finishing isn't bad that's not my point my point is that relative to what he needs to be there he has to be a better finisher than most guys because that's how he's going to derive his value offensively if he can't finish when he gets into the lane he's probably not going to shoot that well maybe he shoots adequately from mid-range that doesn't really matter unless you're like a really good mid-range shooter like chris paul type then that's impactful but do you really want to constrain your offense when every single team is going to go under in the pick and roll? You saw the UCLA game. I'm sure you guys did. And that was mostly for me. That was all scheme related. Like they, they chased over the top. They dropped their big back. No NBA team is going to defend De'Aaron Fox that way. It's going to be, you know, drop under every pick. Like, like Cleveland defended Lance Stevenson in the playoffs. They drop under every pick, even switch and play off like five feet. So that's what you're dealing with. And that, if you want that to be your primary guy, your primary handler, I, I just don't get the justification for it. So what about his uh, defensive potential in your eyes? Extremely quick. Um, probably the quickest laterally in the draft. But if you look at what actually projects well to the NBA, it's usually strength, uh, agility as far as being able to get around screens and absorb some contact and length. And he doesn't really have any of those qualities. Like he's really quick at keeping guys in front of him. But when he gets behind the play on a pick and roll, he can't impact the play anymore. He's basically dead in the water because he doesn't have the frame to like catch up, stay on a guy's hip. And he doesn't have the length to really contest. That's something that Lonzo actually does okay. He's really bad at getting around the screen, but he accelerates well when he gets around it. And then his recovery ability, challenging with his length, is good. So that's something that I think is a little overrated with Fox. His lack of strength there really hurts. For me, it's a lot of how much do you buy? This guy can add legitimate strength at the next level because that's going to be like imperative to his, his ceiling outcome. Gotcha. And then with regards to playmaking, how would you rank that? Or yeah, what do you think about his playmaking? I mean, I know he played next to Malik Monk and Malik Monk handled the ball a little bit. I mean, he shot more than he handled. But yeah, I guess what are your thoughts on his ability to playmake? I think it's fine. I don't view him as any kind of special passer. He makes some simple reads. I don't see any outstanding vision. I think that Dennis Smith actually has better vision than he does, which Mm -hmm. doesn't get reported as much. Maybe his decision-making isn't as good. And that's what separates, I think, Fox from Chris Dunn types, who was a really, really bad decision-maker in college. I don't view Mm -hmm. Fox that way. But Dunn's also a much better defensive prospect, in my opinion. Um, So it comes down to the shooting. Chris Dunn had better indicators there. But it all depends on role. Like the, the problem with Fox is he doesn't have the versatility to switch off that primary initiator role. He, he's not going to play off the ball. He's not going to defend twos that well. He's not that versatile switching. And like with his frame, I think he's actually a liability defensively in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. We, we've seen teams attack these smaller guards and, you know, maybe in time he fills out enough to negate that. But I think that he's actually more of a liability in those situations than even Dennis Smith, who has like a rock sturdy frame, 195, like, I don't know. I, I think his defensive abilities are a little overblown because you see how quick he is. But against NBA athletes that are just much stronger, I'm not sure how much that's going to mean. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about fit, too, with regards to him and D'Angelo Russell, if for some reason that happened to be the case. Um, and I was kind of thinking of the Phoenix Suns when they had Eric Bledsoe and uh, Goran Dragic, obviously D'Angelo being Goran Dragic. But now, obviously, De'Aaron Fox is nothing close to as sturdy and as built as Eric Bledsoe was. But I was just 
uh, viewing it in terms of here's a guard who's super fast, can get in the lane, likes to drive, but can't shoot really well. Do you eventually, if he does fill out, do you could you see that becoming something like a Bledsoe Dragic type fit, or do you just see the it being super awkward between the two, D'Angelo and him? Yeah, it all depends on the shooting in that instance because Bledsoe can shoot. He's not a non-shooter. He's actually a pretty good shooter. So, or at least decent. He's, he's respectable. Can Fox reach that level from three? Because I think we've agreed, to, like talking just in this conversation about D'Angelo, I don't want to move him solely off ball. And mm-hmm. that's just not how I want to play it. If De'Aaron Fox is in Luke Walton's system, like I don't know if he's really the best fit for like a, a, <laughs> like a pass and then screen away, spot up. That's not really his game. Whatever team is picking him, he's they're more like marrying themselves to him being like that dude in one five pick and roll or something. I don't know how else he plays it. So yeah, I don't. I'm not gonna like support any kind of stance that puts D'Angelo pigeonholes him into an off ball role completely as a two guard. I get what you're kind of saying with. De'Aaron Fox's driving ability, if he can actually get to his spots with teams going under, which is a, a pretty decent bet. He's quick enough and he's fast enough to do it. But I, I just don't know if you want to marry yourself to that. Right. Uh, Tommy, do you have any thoughts on De'Aaron Fox? Yeah, for De'Aaron Fox, I think the one thing that sort of got me off that uh, that train, I guess, if you want to, if you want to say that, is... I viewed him as what projected a guy who was projected to be sort of like this elite type of defender at the at the one position, which is pretty rare, right? So you at that point, it's like, okay, if he can be an elite defender at the one and give you any kind of offense, not I shouldn't say any kind of offense, but like decent offense, like he could create off the dribble, he can get to the basket. That's a very intriguing prospect because how many guys do that in the NBA? You know, there's not that many, and most of them I feel like are superstars. So that's why it was it was pretty interesting to me at first. But I think what I sort of when I sort of got off that bandwagon, um, Cole, it's sort of like what you were saying uh, with the comparison to Chris Dunn and how Chris Dunn projects as a much much better defender. De'Aaron Fox has a lot of holes in his defensive game. And the more I watched uh, his tape, the more I realized like, okay, he has good quickness and and good reaction timing and all this and that, but he falls, he fell asleep a lot um, at Kentucky as as a defender. And I don't know, to me that, that sort of reads as like, I don't know, maybe Kentucky, maybe Calipari was at like telling him he needed to do more offensively and he got distracted. I, I, but without making excuses for anybody, I just thought that that was kind of a red flag to me. Uh, if if you're supposed to be like or you're trying to make yourself known as like this defensive type player and, and in college to fall asleep the way he, that he did at times, um, I thought it was kind of a red flag. Yeah, and that's not something that gets brought up a lot, the off-ball defense. A lot of people critique the fact that he pressured on ball too much. I think that's definitely fixable. I mean, he really applied pressure, like sometimes full court, uh, three-quarter court and stuff. And if you take two steps back, he's fine. And that's really coachable. But I I, I definitely agree with your off-ball point. Alan, do you have any thoughts? Uh, The falling asleep thing was actually what I was going to bring up too. So (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) All right, cool. So with De'Aaron Fox, I think we can all agree that if he does succeed in the NBA, it'll be because of his strong work ethic, strong drive, and his ability to either fix his shot and also become bigger in frame and whatnot. So uh, with that said, let's move on to your favorite prospect, Dennis Smith Jr., who is has a very, very sexy game. Uh, <laughs> he's like Kemba Walker with extreme hops, or I've also heard Steve Francis with a jump shot. Yeah, Cole, why are you so high on Dennis Smith Jr.? 
because I believe philosophically and upside at the top of the draft, I, I realize that there's some downside with him, uh, mostly intangibles related. I mean, we even saw that manifest on the court this year, as far as I think he checked himself out of a game. <laughs> like it's pretty, pretty damning stuff to NBA executives, especially when you factor in the, the win loss record and all that, like they really underperformed. But my argument is the same I have with Fultz is what do you expect him to do in that setting? Um, he had no spacing to operate with. He had one secondary handler that's a sophomore that didn't even start and start playing heavy minutes until I think a quarter or a third of the way into the season. But when you look at his game overall, I'm not sure exactly what he is yet because he still he was still recovering physically and definitely mentally from that ACL injury. So you could see the tentativeness in his game at times. Like he didn't attack like athletes in open court. I had posted a, a clip on an article I just wrote about he had a transition opportunity against Frank Jackson at Duke, and he kind of just – he had one-on-one. And this is something like athletes dream of. And he just completely pulled the reins off and backed it out. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, there's a lot of that this year. Um, the shot selection stuff, very, very real concerns. Um, but the same exists for Fultz. Like there's a lot of two-point pull-ups just because there weren't driving lanes. Uh, he's not the best – as far as his IQ and pick and roll, I think he's got good vision. His decision-making is not that great. But if we're talking about stealing outcome, this is a guy who projects as a three-level uh, lead guard. He can score at every single level. He His three-point shot is really underrated, in my opinion. He can pull up with range. I think he had 16 NBA threes off the dribble this year, and that's a lot for a lead guard prospect. Uh, Lonzo was probably the only guy who rivaled him there, and some of those were off the catch. So, or Most of those were off the catch. But... He can score at every single level. He's explosive around the rim. He's creative enough. And I think his playmaking is actually a little underrated. Uh, like Again, he's not going to be like a high-level passer. He gets compared to Chris Paul a lot. He's not Chris Paul. Let's just get that out of the way. His effort level defensively was just egregious at times. But mm-hmm. when he applies himself and you believe in the talent, that was my argument for him too, is because the talent level in the past, I saw this guy at Adidas Nations, and you know he, he was the clear best player there, and it wasn't even close. Like You saw him, and you're like, holy, holy shit. Like This guy's mm-hmm. going to be a legit next-level athlete, and he has a skill. And that's the thing that separates him from most of these like extreme athletes at the league guard position. He's a better shooter than basically John Wall, Russell Westbrook, Derek Rose, Eric Bledsoe, good on the list. He's not quite as long or maybe as explosive in traffic as those guys because he has those shorter arms. But I think his game projects well to the modern lead guard, which is like a three-level score. Um, How would you describe his – obviously, you said his defense was egregious, but would you say that he at least has the tools to become a better defender? Because he looks kind of jacked and stocky, almost like an Eric Bledsoe type. If he just applies himself, would he be able to at least be decent and use his God-gifted abilities and and body to – mitigate that i guess definitely I, I think that he has two things in his favor his strength uh well actually three things he's he's laterally quick when he wants to be he can absorb contact getting through screens like when he actually wants to like he can get right around screens he can chip guys and then his fast hands he's really good anticipation as far as steals mm-hmm. he gets steals on ball you see the package there but it's just like it's lost in the wilderness of not giving in a single F on defense, basically. Like, he just he he went under, I think, on every single pick and roll. And it couldn't have been all scheme if it was and the coach deserved to be fired. But, like, he would just duck under screens regardless of the shooter. Uh, he didn't care at all off ball. He would just stand around for the most part. So it's there's a lot of effort. But at the same time, like, we see high-intensity defenders in college usually translate. I'm not sure if we, the last time we've seen someone who, like, had – this like level of care it actually translated to be a good defender in the future when it just didn't it didn't show itself in college but he has the tools gotcha and i guess the unfortunate part about him is that his wingspan's only 6 
Dean is like 6'4", 6'3". It's pretty short, right? So it's not that great. But did you also want to touch upon his context playing with his NC State and how it didn't allow him the space he needed and whether or not you think he'll have a much easier time in the NBA? Yeah, we've seen athletic guards like him. They're probably the biggest biggest benefactors of NBA spacing and NBA talent than anyone, especially when you have cramped spacing like Smith did. Everybody uses the Yurt 7, like the the seven-footer from international player as a crutch for this being like oh he was a really highly viewed player coming in he was garbage last year like he was so bad he could he couldn't do anything on four and threes teams would just trap dennis smith florida state did this repeatedly when he even when he just like went across half court they would trap him there's nothing anybody else could do as a secondary playmaker so yeah i think there's a lot to do with spacing i don't see any reason why he wouldn't be able to get into the lane at a high level he's a really really good handle you don't see the consistency as far as his burst like he's really good at a triple threat, but sometimes he'll just come around a pick and he it's either he's not trying or he's not that quick. Um, so there are some things that you have to worry about as far as that goes. Maybe he's not 100% athletically, and that's probably the best argument in favor of him. If he was operating at 90%, that extra 10% is going to be huge at the next level. But yeah, I definitely think he's going to be a benefactor of NBA talent and more spacing. If he was playing in UCLA's system, do you think his numbers would look better or more inflated and he'd look <laughs> more efficient, you think? That's such a tough question because UCLA, like they don't run a ton of, I mean, they run some pick and roll, obviously, but it's more just right. pass and screen away. And I think that really favored Lonzo's game. That was a really, really popular argument for Fultz during the season. If you swap Fultz and Ball, how would each team do? And my answer was if UCLA started running pick and roll, Fultz would be unstoppable. But mm-hmm. they don't play that way. I and mean, they play more conducively to Lonzo's skill set. But yeah, I mean, it, I think that would definitely help him, especially situationally. Gotcha. Uh, Tommy, did you have any thoughts on Dennis Smith? No, nothing to add. Alan? I mean, I don't want to harp on his atrocious defense given the situation, but, you know, if you're Magic Johnson and Rob Palenka and you're obviously going to vet him extremely thoroughly, I mean, the reality is the Lakers probably will not be very good next year, although it's incomparable in terms of that situation compared to NC State. But could there be some reservations about his, you know, mentality, his maturity, and his effort on a potentially lottery team next year as well. Like, what if he starts falling asleep even at the NBA level just because he's in another not-so-great situation? Like, is that a real concern? Or could one almost assume, of course, if you get to know him, that he'll turn it on, so to speak, uh, once he gets in the league? I think it's definitely a concern, but the same concern exists for Markel Fultz. I mean, he didn't try very much defensively at all this year, but he's he's known as a better guy off the court. Dennis is kind of a hard-ass on his teammates. He's kind of a perfectionist. His favorite player in the league is Chris Paul, so he kind of has that mentality. Fultz is more of an introvert and a nice dude, so people really like him, but they had the same concerns this year defensively. Maybe it didn't manifest to the extent that Fultz was taking like that level of playoff, even though like he didn't try a lot defensively. I saw a lot of him living up in Seattle, and even though they played 2-3 zone a lot, he was not engaged. But yeah, I think there is some concern if he goes into the wrong situation, a losing environment that he'll blow up at his teammates. That that has some credence. My last question on, on Dennis Smith Jr., and maybe this is more of the Goran Dragic, Eric Bledsoe. Do you see D'Angelo and Dennis Smith 
mimicking that duo, at least on offense, because I, I know in Phoenix, those two would trade off handling the ball and also shooting. And since D'Angelo and Dennis Smith both can shoot, and then Dennis Smith is obviously the more explosive player, D'Angelo is the more crafty player. Maybe that's the better example for that duo. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think that's definitely the better example. If you believe in Dennis Smith's shot, which you have to, to really like his upside, and I do. So I think he can shoot off the catch. He can shoot off the dribble. Um, he can definitely drive better than D'Angelo does. And if Dennis ever applied himself defensively, that could work. Uh, it, but that would take like <laughs> a lot of a lot of hope because I mean he hasn't shown it. But yeah, I, that would be more, much more agreeable for me as far as a fit with D'Angelo. And I just think that Dennis is by far the better basketball player than De'Aaron is. Gotcha. Awesome. Okay, so we're not going to go too much further down this top tier uh, list, but uh, let's let's maybe end with Jason Tatum and what you think of him. I know a lot of people have said that like he is very skilled, especially in the post. He has, uh, he, he, he's almost mim- mimicking Carmelo Anthony at this level already. He's long, <laughs> he's athletic. He looks very fluid. He's very skilled at the same time. He's not elite at any one thing, but he's also not that bad at any one thing either. You could probably question his three point jump shot, but I guess at the NBA, how will this translate? And do you see him as like a, a small forward or a power forward? Is he like a DeMar DeRozan type? Who's just going to live in the mid range game? Um, yeah. What do you think of Jason Tatum? The only thing I can say concretely is that narrative that he's just an isolation player. He's going to be a DeRozan type. I don't buy that. Watching him play in college, he he doesn't get enough credit for his ancillary skills. He's a pretty good passer. He can make passes on the move. He's not just somebody who catches and holds. Duke's offense was just really messed up this year. Um, he had good spacing, of course, but it was just like what he's asked to do with no point guard. I, I don't feel like that has to be his role just because he's a mid-range shooter and he's proficient at like that short area quickness at a triple threat. Like he can get his own shot. That doesn't mean he's going to be like a ball hog. He's not Carmelo Anthony. If you watch Carmelo Anthony film in college, that guy was like fluid as all hell as a shooter. Like every time you shot, you're like, that's going in. Like that's not Jason Tatum. Like he, gotcha. I, I don't know if his shot's going to transfer even from mid-range that well. He can, he has that short area quickness, like I said, to create his own shot. But you hit the nail on the head as far as just, again, being the jack of all trades, kind of the master of none. Not as high of an upside defensively as Josh. Tatum struggles changing directions a little bit more. He gets you know, he had nice steal and block rates this year for a wing. But I think that kind of covered up a little bit of his weaknesses. He's not great in space. Uh, he has He's kind of tight in the hips. So when he tries to sink down and slide, he's not that proficient at it. But he's definitely someone who probably profiles better as being able to add enough strength to play the four position. And I think offensively, that's where his value is going to come. If he can hold up on the glass, he's a pretty good rebounder. Um, he can create a little bit against like more lethargic fours. So mm-hmm. he has, he definitely has some value. I'm not sure if I see the, the high, high upside with him just because he's not explosive at the rim. Uh, he gets a lot of Gordon Hayward comps. He doesn't have that herky jerky style. He's more of like, he'll just bulldoze over guys at the college level. He has some skill as a handler, but I don't see primary score for him but at the same time like he's more skilled than like Harrison Barnes and those kind of guys that don't have any feel sure so it, it, he's difficult to project I mean because he's he's more skilled than some of the guys you want to compare him to but he's not as proficient as a scorer as some of the guys that other people want to compare him to so a happy sure. medium is like a, a solid player and I think that just goes in cahoots with the rest of the, the draft mindset do you have a particular player comp in mind for him? Or do you see him almost like as a eventually a less explosive, leaner, longer Jabari Parker? Maybe? Ooh, that's not bad. Uh, he has better defensive <laughs> he has better defensive instincts than Parker. Sure. Parker's, Parker's a better athlete, like you said. Um, he really popular is Tobias Harris. I, I just okay. think he's. I just think he's way more polished than Tobias was coming out. He, he's way. He can get his shot way easier. But it's kind of that general type. He's not quite as skilled or as good as like a combo forward as Chandler Parsons as far as passing. But he's pretty close. 
Uh, that's not a popular comparison, but that's just something I've reverted back to. He could be kind of that level of guy, in my opinion. But there, there's definitely a wide range of outcomes for him, but I don't see that necessarily immense offensive upside. Cool. Um, does anybody have anything, any thoughts on Jason Tatum? Tommy, Alan? Uh, no, I'm good. I mean, maybe one thing is what type of team would he fit best on? Or is he just the type that you plug him in anywhere and he would be a strong contributor? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I would put him on a team with a strong point guard just to get him more easy looks. That's something he didn't have the benefit of at Duke. So any team with like a legitimate point guard that can get him the ball at his spots. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's kind of someone that there's not like a specific fit for him. He doesn't have that kind of skill set. If he can shoot the ball from three, which we don't really know, um, if he can do that, he can pretty much fit anywhere as far as offensively, at least. It's more of the defensive concerns that, that worry you. Like the better rim protector, the better. But you can say that about a lot of different people. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So let's move on to Jay- from Jason Tatum and kind of go quick fire on the rest of these guys. Malik Monk, who is this guy? Is he a smaller J.R. Smith, a smaller Ray Allen, uh, better, <laughs> af- better, better dunking, more explosive, better shooting Lou Will? Is he, is, could he ever become a pure shooter? Or, and also, is there a playmaker in him? Cole, what are your thoughts on Malik Monk? Uh, he's definitely the best perimeter shooter in this class. I'm a, a pretty big fan of him, and I'm usually not. I didn't like Jamal Murray, as we know, last year. Buddy healed those mm-hmm. types that weren't like lockdown, like established shooters. Monk is just so diverse in his shot making. He can come off screens. I think he was like fifth highest freshman I've seen in like uh, off screen volume. For a freshman, which is insane. Uh, his off the dribble shooting, he was top five in the last decade for wings on high volume. This is a guy who can get a shot going left or right off the dribble. Incredible first step. You have to guard him closely, which is his biggest asset compared to a guy like Josh Jackson, where you could sag off two feet. Mug benefits, and he's going to benefit in NBA space because you have to play up close to him. You have to guard him. And he, he has the athleticism and the actual first step to take advantage of that, unlike a J.J. Redick, Kyle Korver type. So I, I see him as an established shooter. The question is, like you said, the playmaking is going to be something that he has to improve upon. Kentucky guys... Uh, are notoriously kind of held back as far as what they can do. I feel like Monk's, sure. ro- Monk's role there was very rudimentary, coming off screens, you know, taking a lot of shots. He never got to the rim, um, but a lot of that was also spacing. Like, he played next to Fox, he played next to Briscoe. Uh, at times, other guys like Wayne Gabriel at the four who couldn't really shoot that well. So I think there might be some upside there, and that's what really allures me the most. I think he's going to be a proficient shooter. He might be even be an elite shooter. You mentioned Ray Allen. I think that is not entirely unrealistic. Obviously it's a very, very, very high ceiling outcome, but he's the one guy in this draft where I look at with his off the dribble shooting, especially being able to make shots over contests that I'm like, okay, it's, it's reasonable. The only problem of course is on the other side of the floor where he's three inches shorter and who's he going to guard? How much weight is going to add? I think he's listed at 195, 197 right now. He doesn't look that he looks more like 180. So the key with him is going to be not being a defensive liability because he has a point guard's body and he's a shooting guard. I don't think he's going to be a primary initiator. He's got a decent handle, but yeah, I think his upside as a shooter, as an established shooter in this class, you can argue probably top five. I don't know where I'm going to have him, but I'm I'm probably going to have him in that area, top five. So there's more to him than I think that he's getting credit for as far as a passer. He can make rudimentary reads. He's okay there. So yeah, I I mean, I'm, I'm definitely high on him. I haven't heard this comp yet, but what do you think about prime Eric Gordon? That is a good one. 
Yeah, because Eric Gordon was pretty athletic when he came out of, uh, you know, college and he could always shoot really well. So, you know, and he's smaller for a guard. So I could see Malik Monk essentially being that way. And if he stays healthy his whole career, that's like a 22-4-4 player, you know, something like that. So uh, we'll see. Uh, lastly, the only other uh, elite prospect I wanted to ask you in like the top 10 lottery is uh, Jonathan Isaac, because he's everybody's fast rising sleeper, whatever. Yeah, dark he's horse. Um, so talk me into Jonathan Isaac, because I he, he he can handle the ball. He can kind of shoot. Why isn't this guy just Jonathan Bender? Is he a cross between like a poorer, <laughs> poorer man's version of Ingram and Thon Maker? He kind of has a little bit of Thon Maker in him in that he's super tall, but he also... I mean, he can handle the ball, but it's not to, like, Brandon Ingram's level. He can't shoot the ball to Brandon Ingram's level. He likes to shoot from the outside. Is it kind of like Thon Makery, and do you see him as a power forward and, and eventually a center? Yeah, what are your thoughts on Jonathan Isaac? I think that most people have the wrong perception of him. They see elite upside offensively as a creator. I do not see that. I think he mm-hmm. is he's not going to be that player where he brings his value is defensively. Uh, his versatility, his ability to guard in space, uh, play the four spot, he has great range. Uh, he's not elite as far as off-ball IQ, but he's pretty good. He had a really rough game against Xavier. But this is a guy that is 6'11", 6'10", or whatever, and he can really crouch down in his stance and, and switch. And in this modern game, if you can do that, and then you can provide rim protection, which is what he does, and that's insanely valuable. He's really good vertically as far as verticality, protecting the rim. In time, if he adds enough strength, I think he can play small ball five in the playoffs. Uh, but back to the offense, I, I think that's really overrated. People see a primary kind of score on the wing. I think Brandon Ingram was a far better uh, offensive prospect. To be honest, I think he's better feel. That's one thing that Isaac really doesn't have. Maybe his passing is a little bit undersold, but it's not at like a second, even a secondary creator level. It's more of like, it's a little bit more than the three and D guy, especially as you push him down positions. If he can play the four, he becomes kind of interesting. Um, as far as playmaking goes, he can dribble and shoot fluidly off the bounce a little bit. Um, if he plays the five in the playoffs, he becomes incredibly valuable for me. So it, mm. I think it's all about context, but really like emphasizing the defensive play because that's where he's going to bring his value. Gotcha. So I'm not too far off on the Thon Maker thing, right? No, no. That, I think that's a really well said thing. I mean, that's Thon Maker's biggest gift is his ability to mirror mirror guards in space, like we saw against Kyle Lowry in the playoffs. Like that guy can really move his feet, and Isaac right. profiles kind of similarly. So hypothetically, let's say if we take out Julius Randle and plug Thon Maker, Thon Maker, Jonathan <laughs> Isaac in his spot, would that be? Do you think that would fit the Lakers better in terms of a guy who can space the floor and also just rim protect? Oh hell yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. I mean Isaac's <laughs> Isaac's translatable skills are more than Randle's. I think Randle was better at you know bulldozing through guys, but he doesn't have that explosiveness to really capitalize via finishing. Isaac's three point shot is by no means like a, a done deal. I think he dropped to thirty three percent. I'm not sure if he hit an NBA three all year. If he attempted some, they're woefully short. So he has some room to improve there. He's got to put on more strength. But he's definitely a better shooting projection than, than Randall was. And defensively, I don't think it's relatively close. Even though Randall did show the ability to switch um, onto smaller guys, I think that's probably his best defensive quality. I don't know if you guys agree with that. But uh, Isaac prov- prov- provides more rim protection for sure. Okay, cool. So with that said, that'll wrap up just the the lottery selections and that Mark, non-Markel Fultz tier. So with that said, we're going to close our show with just some quick fire number 28 pick options. Uh, I'll, I'll start with Tommy and Alan first to see if they have any guys they have in mind that they want to ask Cole about. So Alan, do you have any guys you want to highlight? Uh, just general thoughts on E.K. Anibogu. Um, seems like a really like a physical specimen for sure, but in terms of the his skills and just his refinement, it seems to be pretty limited. 
Uh, just what's your overall take on EK and Ibogu? Uh, pretty much that. <laughs> I mean, physically, <laughs> at 6'10", like I think 6'10 with a 7'6 wingspan, tree trunk legs really filled out for his age. I mean, he's a specimen for his age, how young he is. Uh, skill-wise, he's pretty much just a lob dunker at UCLA. Um, but I think Draft Express had some videos of him shooting mid-range shots. I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, I haven't really seen it on the court. You haven't seen it manifest. But as a physical specimen, he tries to block everything as far as around the rim. I'm not sure how good of an actual defender he is, but he certainly has the tools. And in that area, I don't see any objection to taking him, depending on how you feel about the other Lakers centers outside of Mozgov, who I'm assuming nobody likes. So, <laughs> You are correct. Uh, Tommy, do you have any prospects that you have in mind? Yeah, the one guy I was thinking of, and... I, maybe this is on my mind because I, there was some rumor that apparently he has a pro, late first round promise from the Lakers. Uh, Tony Bradley out of North Carolina. It was interesting to me because most of what I've seen, like most, uh, I don't know, the biggest draft, you know, Draft Express and all the major sites, it seems like have him ranked as a second round pick. But there is a draft analyst on Twitter, Dean on Draft, who I know, Cole, I think you're familiar with him. He has Tony Bradley ranked pretty high, and so I'm just trying to get a sense of like who is Tony Bradley because honestly, I have no no idea. Like I don't know anything about him. Yeah, I'm not as proficient with him. I've I've seen him play. I know kind of what he's about. Dean definitely has him high because of his offensive rebounding rate. So he's pretty statistically geared. So if he sees an indicator that he really likes, he's going to rank him high. Um, At this point, I can't really speak to his skill level or anything like that. I just know he definitely looks the part. But I I definitely got to get more into uh, a film breakdown on him. So uh, I can't really answer too specifically, but he definitely has the physical tools. If you look at him, like he looks like an NBA player. It's just can it really manifest in any other area but rebounding. Sure. Um, One prospect that I like that I'm not sure if he's going to fall to the Lakers is Tyler Lydon because he looks to me like the more athletic and shot-blocking version of Ryan Anderson. Maybe he's not going to get to that purist shooting or like be a pure shooter like Ryan Anderson, but I almost see him as like a cross between, like a better shooting Sam Decker, something like that, because he looks extremely athletic, um, and his block rates is also pretty impressive. So what do you think about Tyler Lydon if he was able to fall, and do you think he could get to the Lakers? I definitely think he could. I mean, he has the two skills that you talked about. I really believe in his shot making. He's, he's a good shooter with range. He can come off screens, and he's proficient there. He, he just, his shot passes the eye test, and he's a good weak side shot blocker. But outside of that defensively, I think he's a total disaster. He's not going to play in space. He, he's going to get destroyed in space as far as moving laterally, and he's he's not strong at all. Like He's even added, okay. I think, 20 pounds this year, and I think he's, what, like two, I want to say 215 or something. He gets tossed around inside. Uh, he can't defend the rim from a standstill. So there are some things about his game. Like he has an NBA skill in shooting and he can protect the rim some as a weak side guy. I don't mind him as a backup four. I think he's a reasonable pick in that area. I would take him over like TJ Leaf, for example. I think he's a little bit more Mm -hmm. athletic. And from every person I've talked to that's seen him shoot in person, it's like a very, very real thing. He doesn't have great feel with the ball, but that's not why you're drafting him. Not drafting him to, to play make or anything like that. But if he was a better rebounder, I would feel a little bit better about him. And I just don't think he adds anything defensively. But again, he's a situational NBA player. Sure. Um, And then I also like Anzezers Pasechniks. He is like a better shooting, more skilled 
Euro Tyson Chandler, right? I liked how uh, long he is and how athletic he is. I mean, he's not as athletic as a Willie Cauley Stein or anything like that, but I, I do see potential there. So what are your thoughts on Pasechnik's? Yeah, I think that pretty much echoes mine. He's a pretty fluid athlete. He can get up a little bit. And if you believe in the shooting, he could be something. I know some international guys are really high on him that watch like pretty much every game of his that are relatively high. I think they have him like top 14, but other guys are wow. super, super low. I want to say that Javier, who co-hosts my pod with me, he is not as high on him. I can't remember the rationale. We haven't really gotten to international prospects yet. But uh, yeah, I mean, at that range, you're looking at a bunch of bigs. There's probably 14 bigs that are in like a, a 20 position range or 20 spot in the draft range. And some of those guys are going to get pushed down. So he could easily do that. Gotcha. Uh, what are your thoughts on Jordan Bell? Because I know the Lakers are about to work him out. Um, what separates him from just being another Zach August type player? Is it mainly the defense and rim protection? Yeah, he's one of my actually. He's my sleeper of the draft. I have him top twenty, mm-hmm. so I'm okay. I'm really high on him. The only thing about him is he's a situational kind of niche player. His frame we saw against North Carolina. I mean, this is the common adage, but he gets thrown around on the glass. He's not very developed. But this is a guy who's probably the best defensive big in the class as far as sliding laterally. He can pretty much switch onto anybody, and he can protect the rim. It's just, do you want to invest that kind of capital in a pure backup? But if you're talking about pure backups and making an impact, I like his ability to actually stick on the floor in the playoffs. So for me, he's worth an investment. He's a decent passer, which he doesn't get enough credit for. He's not super, okay. super explosive, but he, he can finish lobs. And he's he's skilled enough to where if you get him the ball in a short roll, I think that's where he excels actually the most, just playing with all Oregon's guards and their shooting. It got him well acclimated to play that role. So he can come in and play with like a Jordan Clarkson if people trap him. I don't know why he would, but if he did, he, he'd be able to make that extra pass to the corner or something. He's, he's capable there. Okay, cool. Um, what about Bam Adebayo from Kentucky, I believe, right? Was it Kentucky? Yes. Um, so he, to me, looks like... I mean, sometimes he looks like Dwight Howard, but it, it's he's athletic, but then also, weirdly he looks slow and like he's moving in molasses or something. I don't know. It's weird. It's like DeAndre Jordan in slow motion. What do you think of Bam Adebayo? (laughs) Um, Yeah, for me, he's just not a good enough rim protector for me to be interested in. He's more of a a garbage guy, but if you do that, you'd have to defend in space pretty well, which he does. He's pretty good at switching. He's pretty quick. I just don't want to invest heavy capital in someone who's not skilled and who can't protect the rim. So for me, he's not that interesting, maybe, with the Lakers pick. I, I don't really hate anybody if the Lakers pick there. Um, to be honest, outside of, like, Dwayne Bacon of Florida State, like, he shouldn't be drafted. And I <laughs> literally just do not like him as a prospect. So you could go a lot of different ways, and I, I wouldn't hate it. And that applies to Adebayo as well. Gotcha. My last uh, prospect that I want to ask about is Jonathan Jean. John, whatever his name okay. is. I, all I know is he's 7'2", seven, seven has a 7'6 wingspan, same agent as Gobert, and he is skinny <laughs> as all heck, but he can also shoot threes, which Gobert can't do. Whether or not that translates in the NBA, you at least know he has some sort of stroke. And if he's able to fill his body out like Gobert, do you see some potential there as just like a draft and stash or just like a high upside swing? Uh, I absolutely see some potential. I talked to his agent actually about three years ago about him, and he said that he had that Gobert mentality. And this is one of the most like straightforward agents you'll ever see. Like he'll he'll be critical of his own guys, and he was like, "This guy has the mentality." The problem is we haven't seen him fill out at all, and he's not playing internationally on like not a very good level in the French B. I think he's in. So like. Mm-hmm. I get the skills. I'm not believing in his shot. A lot of guys think he's some kind of unicorn potential. He does not shoot a fluid shot. But what he does do is run the court really well. He's really agile for that size. You don't see that. Uh, he can switch a little bit, which is which is cool. And then he has that obviously outlier length to where he can protect the rim. So 
I, I absolutely understand taking a dice roll in this guy from a physical tool standpoint, and he's coordinated enough to run the floor. But even at the combine, this guy was getting bullied by guys he should not get bullied by. So it, it's a long-term investment, um, but it definitely has some upside. Gotcha. Okay, I'll throw it to Alan and Tommy, and if you guys have any just thoughts on this number 28 pick in general or any other prospects you want to throw out, go ahead. Go for it, Tommy. <laughs> I, I, I have no other prospects uh, to throw out. I mean, the only thing I was thinking of was um, – I was expecting us to maybe look at a, a senior uh, type player in college uh, with that pick just because the rest of our team is so young. And I don't know if we would take a chance on another international guy there, but I don't know. Any thoughts, maybe Cole, on any seniors that stand out that you haven't already mentioned? I really like Josh Hart. I don't get why he doesn't get more hype than he does. I mean, if you want to rank him in the low 20s, I get it because you look at him and you don't see NBA athlete. But this is someone who is skilled. He's shown the ability to run pick and roll his senior year especially. He's been an elite finisher at the rim every year, which is something he doesn't get credit for. He's really good body control-wise as far as maximizing his athleticism. If he can shoot the NBA three, which I think he can, like he can be a valuable role player. And that's a pretty good return on your investment at 28. Um, obviously for you guys, I'm sure a lot of uh, is built into this with Lonzo at two, getting that secondary or primary playmaker and fixating more on the front court. But if he's there at 28, I would seriously consider him. Another guy that I know, Ben Rosales, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, the on, on Twitter. One yeah, of the main, I think so. Yeah, the main Laker guy, one of the main Laker guys, he's really high on Sundarius Thornwell, and that's someone who I was really high on. I think his defense is, gonna, is going to translate effectively. He's, he's probably the best instinctual perimeter defender in the draft, I would say. He's not an elite athlete, so he has to win by being a technician. I was really high on him. I had him top, I want to say top 17 earlier, but... Uh, more information came out about his shooting. Can't shoot from NBA range yet. Shoots kind of a knuckleball. But uh, he's someone who can provide defense at that spot. You got the Cal Poly kid, which is my alma mater, so that, that's my dude. So hopefully it doesn't impinge on him if he, if he gets selected at 28. So, But he's another guy to look at that's a senior. Awesome. Cool. Okay, so I guess that'll wrap up just our entire draft talk here, and I, as is the case with most of these podcasts that have a draft come on, the draft guy come on, we're going to ask you about how you would rank Brandon Ingram in this year's draft. Where would he go for you? <laughs> oh, God, that's tough. Somebody else asked me that, too. I have no good response to this because um, I, I really liked Ingram at the time. Again, I wasn't somebody who had him number one, but I really saw him as a, a good feel kind of impact defender. Do I have the benefit of hindsight or no <laughs> at the time? Uh, like right now? Oh, you, are you talking about if you had to rank him? Before you saw him in the NBA, is that what you're saying? Correct. Yeah. Is, am I dealing with him when he came out, or do I have the benefit of hindsight? Let's benefit of hindsight, like knowing what you know now, knowing that he's still only 19 years old, and that you saw a stronger second half of the season, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, that's tough. Um, he wouldn't be top. He wouldn't be top two for me for sure. I would have both Fultz and Smith ahead of him as the two high upside okay. guys. But I could definitely see. I don't see a really valid argument for Tatum. Josh Jackson or Isaac ahead of him. Maybe Isaac brings a little bit more value defensively. So he's in that two to seven range for me for sure. I don't think I'm not someone who has moved Ingram like all the way down on my list. Like this guy's a, a nothing now. I mean, I, I watched a lot of Lakers games last year. I'm, I'm still believing in, in the talent. So uh, he'd be in that uh, three to seven, three to eight range. I can't put an exact mark on it. <laughs> oh, cool. It's reasonable and fair. Uh, Tommy, where, where would you rank uh, Brandon Ingram in this year's draft? Number one. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> it's such a Brody answer, dude. I love it, dude. That's great. Alan, what about you? 
Uh, 1.5. Why not? Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I'm with you. I I want to say number two, but it, right now, you know, it, we're not sure whether or not he can get to that superstar level range or whether he can just become a really d- jack-of-all-trades kind of player that helps you out in a bunch of different areas but doesn't really reach that elite level type scoring that that is known of superstars you know so i mean yeah. i think at the end of the day it'll boil down to his jump shot again and his three-point shot and that his ability to translate that right so i agree but otherwise the, the second half of his season i saw a lot more explosiveness he learned how to jump off of one foot he was dunking over people like it was no one's business and that's all with him not filling out his frame yet and i was like okay well that is progress and potential so we'll see I look forward to more of your conversations with Buck's Twitter about Thon. I remember that inter- inter- oh, that God, was pretty dude. great. <laughs> is, is it a question that if we redrafted the 2016 draft, the Thon maker could go before Brandon Ingram? And I was like, I mean, it's it's a question. It's a really dumb one, though. It's just the most ridiculous thing like <laughs> I've ever heard in my life, considering Thon maker at the time was averaging eight minutes, right? And we're stra- extrapolating all that info from eight minutes. And yeah. Anyways, not to get into that. Last question, Lonzo or D'Angelo? Um, or is it a matter of preference for you? Let's say everything e- is considered equal, contract deal, et cetera. I would take D'Angelo. I, I know that's a minority opinion, but I still believe oh, in the okay. kid. I, I don't think he's got a fair shake in the league so far as far as situation. Um, he hasn't played with any really good bigs. He doesn't have like adequate spacing. The, the, off the dribble shooting did not translate like I thought it would. I thought he would be elite there. I still have – he was elite in college. Like of the last decade for league guards, he was way up there as far as high volume, high efficiency. If he gets that aspect of his game, I still like him. If he reigns his decision-making, I think he can be a really dominant lead guard. Um, if he can shoot the ball off the dribble, that, that's really the key for him. But, again, I don't really see Lonzo as a lead guard, and I value guys that can initiate offenses more consistently and be scoring threats. So I'm going to go D'Angelo, but I completely, like, it's, it's up in the air. I mean, there's so much to, to be discovered with D'Angelo this year. Yeah. Tommy, what, what are your thoughts on D'Angelo versus Lonzo? Um, I'll take both of them on my team, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, if I had to choose one, I think I do choose D'Angelo. Maybe that's like a little bit of bias because we've been watching him so closely the last two years. But I guess I with Lonzo, it's like you're you're more excited about what he can do for his team. But sometimes you just need a guy who can go out there and score at will. And, you know, we sort of don't have that type of player. We don't know who those types of players are going to be for us. So I take D'Angelo. Alan, what about you? Well, I'll play devil's advocate then, just so this doesn't get boring. Um, I'll take Lonzo, because like Tommy said, he's very exciting to watch, and what you're expecting to see from him is to get everyone on the team involved, and you know, the whole adage is, look at UCLA, they went from such a horrible season, and then all of a sudden Lonzo gets there, and they're top five all year long in the country, so hopefully all that translates at the professional level, and he brings that type of culture where it's team first and not player first, so that's why I'm going to go with Lonzo, just to be different. Okay, well I think it's a fair question to ask out of the two, which which guy will actually make his team as a whole better? Um, but I will say that right now I'll give the slight edge to D'Angelo just because of the versatility versatility in his offensive game, right? Because, look, the one area where he's not great at is finishing at the rim, but to mitigate that, he has a post game that not a lot of guards have, you know? And then a mid-range game too, and like last year it didn't uh, bear itself out, but I know he can hit that mid-range shot if he just continues to take it and 
not be afraid to go into no man's land, get people in jail. And those are things that Lonzo Ball just can't do, you know? And what separates, I think, normal guards from being... What separates superstar guards and normal guards is what we found is like the mid-range game, right? From Chris Paul to Kyrie Irving to Russell Westbrook, being able to get in no man's land and catching the defense off guard and pulling up for that mid-range shot. And right now, Lonzo Ball doesn't have any semblance of that to his game. So I think that's why I put D'Angelo there right now, obviously. At the end of the day, though, like both of them could possibly be together. And I guess, Cole, my last question to you is, in in what ways do you think Lonzo Ball would help D'Angelo Russell out in his own development? Well, I mean, we saw the lack of a secondary playmaker or like a co-playmaker last year when D'Angelo would swing the ball to somebody. They didn't really have anybody on the weak side that was capable of doing what D'Angelo does. Like when D'Angelo mm-hmm. sat out games, there was just no answer. There was no replacement. Lonzo is in r- ridiculous at moving the ball and getting guys good shots, even if he did, doesn't really have the functional athleticism or the skill level with the ball to create, you know, on-ball like next level passing angles that some guys that are athletic and skilled do like Markel Fultz can like do like a double spin move, hang in the air and then like do a drop off pass to somebody. And that stuff matters. But Lonzo is really good at getting guys uh, good shots in their spots. And that can only help D'Angelo as far as someone who is a way better passer than a Jordan Clarkson type is from a secondary handler perspective. And he's going to make the offense better. He's more of like an enabler of others. In my opinion, he's going to make everybody on the team better as long as he doesn't have to be the guy or maybe even the top two guys, he's going to make his surrounding teammates better. So I really do think he's going to benefit D'Angelo. D'Angelo has been really good uh, catch and shoot threes and stuff like that. So he's definitely going to be a benefactor of that. Awesome. Okay. Well, with that said, thank you, Cole, so much for joining us once again. That went way over time, but that's okay. <laughs> this is what this is what this season's about, right? Delving deep and like never coming out of that rabbit hole. And it's great to have your insight once again. And congratulations again on all your success and just gaining a lot of traction with all the Twitter followers, the show on All Money Baller Radio. And yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Again, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, this is actually the shortest podcast I've had in a while so that's uh that's interesting but yeah more of an indictment of myself but again guys thanks thanks a lot for having me all right thanks cool we'll catch you later all right thanks guys yeah thanks man of course all right so that was our show with cole zwicker we hope you guys enjoyed that we are going to have a couple more shows before the draft comes with some great guests so please stay tuned and please subscribe to us on itunes please rate and review us on itunes and obviously follow us on twitter at lakers legacy pod also quick personal plug for myself and what i actually do full-time in real life on june 2nd there's a movie called captain underpants by dreamworks animation if you have kids if you read that book as a kid and remember those fond memories of a character named professor poopy pants Please go and watch DreamWorks Animation's Captain Underpants, June 2nd. Who cares about Wonder Woman? All we care about is Captain Underpants and the NBA draft, of course. So, yeah, what more could you ask for leading into June? So, thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for more great quality content from the Lakers Legacy, and we'll catch you guys next time. Peace out.
This is what flow from Progressive sounds like in one of our many hilarious commercials. Hi, did you know that you can get a quote on your motorcycle insurance in under three minutes at Progressive.com? And did you know that saying hi makes even bad news sound good? Hi, you have high cholesterol. Hi, you're fine. And this is what that same commercial sounds like on your motorcycle. Hi, there's no more cake. Even our commercials sound better on a bike. And with basic policy starting at $75 a year, Progressive helps keep you on yours. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Annual premium for basic liability policy not available in all states. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 455 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.